Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Scripture Uncovered. Last time, we looked at the Bible and how canons form. Today, I'd like to look at the Bible and specifically address sacred texts, how a text becomes a sacred text. And that's our topic for today. Now, we understand how literary and musical canons developed, but how do religious canons develop and become viewed as sacred? And that's a really good and important question. As pre-literate societies developed and became more complex, memory no longer served adequately for record keeping and for managing those societies. Something more stable and permanent was needed. Now, evidence suggests that writing in the West developed first in Mesopotamia in cuneiform script around 3100 BC and simultaneously in Egypt in hieroglyphs. In Sumer, Mesopotamia, writing employed a round-shaped stylus impressed into soft clay at different angles. In Egypt, writing combined logographic, syllabic, and alphabetic images written with a reed pen on papyrus or inscribed in stone. You can look at a cuneiform tablet uh, in a collection in the Library of Congress. And looking at it, well, I don't, I can't read cuneiform, but it's one of the early forms of writing. Something more to my understanding is Egyptian hieroglyphs. Now, as I mentioned, I think in our last podcast, with COVID, I hope in our rearview mirror, uh, we were able to go to Egypt this past January, and we explored the pyramids, we explored the tombs, and we looked at the hieroglyphic writing. And once you get the hang of it, you can read the hieroglyphs. It's not that difficult. But hieroglyphs, early on, they're all over Egypt in the archaeological sites. In the cuneiform tablets, the writing initially consisted of lists of record-keeping for various business transactions, something very practical. In the case of Meruka's tomb in Egypt, there's a false door for Meruka's ka, or soul, to enter. And the hieroglyphs are magical incantations inviting Meruka's ka, his spirit, into the afterlife. The idea of writing, of expressing transient oral speech in a permanent fixed form, seemed utterly miraculous to the ancients. Indeed, writing was viewed as a gift from the gods. In Egypt, the god Toth, was ascribed to the gods, and the Egyptians credited him with the invention of writing and of giving his divine gift to humans. Interestingly, the Greeks associated the Egyptian god Toth with Hermes, the Greek messenger of the gods. And recall that on their first missionary journey, AD 46 to 48, St. Paul and St. Barnabas visited Lystra, and the people proclaimed Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes because Paul was the chief speaker, the one who brought the word. This divine gift of writing was the purview of professional scribes, men trained in this very esoteric art. Like skills in many of the later trade guilds, scribal skill was passed on from father to son 
and because scribes worked in the upper echelons of government, they quickly became an elite, privileged class. So you see where we're going with this? It's from within this elite scribal class that the written literature of the Near East originates. That's an important observation. In the ancient Near East, literacy among the culturally elite spread rapidly from government to religion. Remember, the initial writing was government lists, records that needed to be kept, payroll records, inventory records, and so on. But very quickly, it moved to religion. In the temples of Mesopotamia and Egypt, temple liturgies, oracles, and sayings were written down to preserve their exact wording, and hence their efficacy. If you didn't have the exact wording, well, the religious text wouldn't work. What's more, writing down religious texts restricted access to them. It didn't make them more available, it made them less available, making such texts available only to the elite and the properly initiated, while creating an aura of sanctity around them. In fact, writing literature enabled the creation of sacred texts. Only an educated elite class has the time and ability to probe the really great questions of life, the origin of the cosmos, the creation of humanity, the nature of evil, and so on. Such concerns of the human condition characterized most sacred texts, including those of the Hebrew scriptures. The early stories in Genesis, for example, may appear simple, but they are highly intellectual and exceedingly complex. The stories in the historical books examine the meaning of history and the destiny of Israel, Judah, and the surrounding nations. The Psalms probe the deepest longings of the human heart, and the prophets voice the concerns of Israel's God to a stubborn and intransient people. What's more, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David are stories that can only be told through writing, through a literature capable of sustained character development, intricate plotting, complex structuring, and very subtle nuance. Such written works, elevated to the position of sacred literature, were then collected and cataloged by the elite class of scribes and made available to the people through oral recitation of a controlled text. Consider as an example the early version of Deuteronomy found in the temple in 622 BC by the priest Hilkiah and given to Shaphan the scribe. We read in 2 Kings 22. The high priest Hilkiah informed the scribe Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. <laughs> Imagine scripture got lost in church. <laughs> so Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Then the scribe Shaphan went to the king and reported, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And then Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Notice the king could not read himself. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his garments. The king then issued this command, 
Go consult the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah about the words of this book that has been found. For the rage of the Lord has been set furiously ablaze against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book, nor do what is written for us. As a result, we read, The king then had all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem summoned before him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the people of Judah and all the priests, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, great and small. He read aloud to them all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the column and made a covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and observe his commandments, statutes, and decrees with his whole heart and soul and to reestablish the words of the covenant written in this book. All the people stood by the covenant. Only 17 years after Josiah's reforms, however, in 605 BC, Judah and Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian Empire, and the people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon in 586. The Babylonian captivity, 605 to 539 BC, prompted a great deal of soul searching. How could this possibly have happened? The obvious answer was that the Israelites violated their covenant with God, a covenant clearly enunciated in the scriptures, and God punished them for doing so. 1 Chronicles 9 verse 1 states very plainly, Now Judah had been exiled to Babylon because of its treachery. But when Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, defeated Babylon in 539 and allowed the Jews to return home and rebuild, the book of Deuteronomy acquired chapters 1 through 4 and 29 through 30 to form an instructive story of a people about to enter a promised land a story that highlights the requirements of a reinstated covenant relationship with God, updated to 4th century B.C. requirements with an appropriate ending in chapters 31 through 34. And if that's the case, as the vast majority of Hebrew scripture scholars suggest, then the words that Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 1 verse 1, these are the words of Moses, the book begins, the words of Moses, are the words of the literary and theological portrayal of Moses, not the words of Moses, the historical figure. They are the ipsissima vox, the very voice, not the ipsissima verba, the very words of Moses. And that distinction is important for two reasons. Crafting Deuteronomy in the very voice of Moses carries with it an implied, divinely sanctioned authority for what is being said. And, number two, it allows the authors to lift the narrative message outside of time to create an historical continuum that spans countless generations past, present, and future. As in the celebration of Passover, Deuteronomy elevates the Exodus story outside of history, allowing its readers, past, present, and future, to participate in the story itself. If Deuteronomy were simply the historical Moses speaking to the Israelites on the plains of Moab, 
the Ipsism of Verba, the very words of Moses, it would make a darn good story, a bridge between the Exodus tale and the conquest of the Promised Land. But by the fourth century, authors, editors, and redactors had created the literary figure of Moses, the Ipsissima Vox, the very voice of Moses, allowing the story to transcend its historical roots and become a universal statement, the narrative of all liberation stories, the narrative of redemption. When Ezra the scribe and priest returns to Jerusalem in 458 BC, it is this story, the book of Deuteronomy, in its final finished form that rises quickly to the top of Hebrew literature, an early entrant into the canon of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, of course, there were many other works written from the 3rd century BC through the 3rd century AD that didn't make it into the Hebrew canon. Books like the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Letter of Aristius, the Revelation of Ezra, the Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah, and many more. All of them vied for readership, but only the cream rose to the top. The books that didn't make it are classified as pseudepigrapha, from the Greek meaning false inscription, false name or false inscription. Every book of the Hebrew Scriptures has its own more or less complex textual history, and each book followed its own path to canonization, though many vanished through neglect or were simply tossed aside along the way, relegated to minor literary artifacts. So now we see how canons evolve, how oral stories came to be written, and how the written word as literature rises to the level of sacred scripture. So we're right on track here, folks. Next, we need to look at how that canon formed, how the canon of the Old Testament formed. So on we move to how religious canons develop, how the books in it become viewed as sacred writings, how all the books are collected together of the Old Testament, how did they get there? And that is our next big question that we'll address right now. Thanks to the conquest of Alexander the Great, 356 to 323 BC, and his successors, Koine Greek or Common Greek became the lingua franca of the ancient Near East, the land stretching from Asia Minor in the north to Egypt in the south, and from Macedonia in the west to modern-day Afghanistan and India in the east. Hellenization was so successful that most of the people in those lands embraced it wholeheartedly. A fairly large number of Jews resisted the trend in Babylon, however, producing the Babylonian Talmud in Hebrew and Aramaic during the 6th century AD. But most embraced the culture and language of the Greeks. In the West, particularly in Alexandria, Egypt, and north into Judah and Jerusalem, Hellenization became so complete that Hebrew was all but forgotten and Greek became the written language of literate Jews. Recall that the entire New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Since the Hebrew scriptures were not accessible to Hellenized Jews, the Hebrew scriptures needed to be translated into Greek. 
The pseudo-epigraphical letter of Aristius is a story telling how that translation came to be. The Egyptian king Ptolemy II, who reigned from 285 to 247 BC, wanted Demetrius of Phalarum, his librarian, to collect all the books in the world for his library at Alexandria. Demetrius thought that such a collection should include the Jewish law in a Greek translation. So he ordered a letter to be written to the high priest in Jerusalem. In the letter, he suggested that six members of each of the 12 tribes be involved in the translation, a suggestion that was accepted by the high priest and the 72 men were sent to Alexandria, where, after a sumptuous banquet, they set to work on their translation. Miraculously, the 72 men completed the final draft of their translation in precisely 72 days. After being reviewed by the Greek-speaking Jewish community in Alexandria, curses were pronounced on anyone who should change the translation in any way, affirming that the translation was canonized as the official Greek version of the text. We read in the letter to Aristius, as the books were read, the priests stood up with the elders from among the translators and from the representatives of the community and with the leaders of the people and said, since this version has been made rightly and reverently and in every respect accurately, it is good that this should remain exactly so and that there should be no revision. It was general approval of what they said, and they commanded that a curse should be laid, as was their custom, on anyone who should alter the version by any addition or change to any part of the written text or any deletion either. This was a good step taken to ensure that the words were preserved completely and permanently in perpetuity. Thus reads the letter of Aristius. Although the story tells us that 72 men worked as translators, the Alexandrian Greek translation became known as the 70, or the Roman numeral LXX, the Septuagint in Latin. Perhaps recalling Exodus 24, 1 and 9, where we read that 70 elders accompanied Moses up Mount Sinai to receive the law and the commandments from God. This original Septuagint translation in the mid-3rd century BC included only the five books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By that time, these books were firmly established in Judaism as sacred canonical writings. The prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim, were added to the Septuagint over time as were other books written in Greek, including those we call the Deuterocanonical books, Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Serach, Baruch, and the additions to Daniel and Esther, as well as the Psalms of Solomon, 3 and 4 Maccabees, the Letter of Jeremiah, the Book of Odes, the Prayer of Manasseh, and Psalm 151, which were included in various copies of the Septuagint. Now, importantly, the Septuagint, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles knew, was not yet a closed canon at the time of Jesus and the early church. As nearly as we can tell, 
there was no established canon of scripture at all in Second Temple Judaism prior to AD 70. No authoritative list from which books could be added or subtracted. And that makes sense because codices were just emerging. That is, pages gathered together between two covers, what we would call a book. All the Old Testament writings were on individual scrolls. So apart from the Torah, they were not viewed as clearly defined sets or collections. The invention of the codex, of the book, pages stacked horizontally and bound together, was important in defining the canon. Because once you bind the pages between two covers, they become viewed as a fixed collection. In addition, while there were authoritative writings gathered into loosely defined groups, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, and so on, or the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, as Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 44, these categories remained open for quite some time. For the writing of sacred works, or scripture, was not seen as being limited to the distant past. Witness the advent of Jesus and the Christ Christian scriptures, which emerge from Second Temple Judaism. This, my friends, is fascinating. Now you might say, now wait a minute. Didn't, quote, the rabbis define the canon of Jewish scripture the Old Testament in AD 90 at the Council of Jamnia as the 39 books originally written in Hebrew prior to the Septuagint translation? Well, that's what many people think, but what many people think is not correct. A lot of people thought that since Heinrich Gratz, who lived from 1817 to 1891, first proposed this hypothesis in his 1871 book, The History of the Jews. In it, Gratz points out that the Mishnah, compiled at the end of the second century, describes a debate over some of the books of the Ketuvim, the writings, in particular the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, as reading them could render a person unclean. Now, if you think that's a stretch, have a look at the Song of Songs. It's a highly charged erotic love poem a celebration of longing and sexual intimacy. It was only accepted into the canon in the second century AD if read as an allegory of God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. But trust me, friends, it's an erotic love poem. From this and other references, Gratz imagined a council that met at Jamnia, about 12 miles south of present-day Jaffa, in a school of religious law that had been founded by Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai shortly before AD 70. Raymond Brown, one of the giants of 20th century Roman Catholic biblical scholarship, seriously questioned the Council of Jamnia hypothesis in, his, in the New Jerome Bible Commentary. And F.F. Bruce, the superb Protestant evangelical scholar, said in the Canon of Scripture, that it is probably unwise to talk as if there were a council or a synod of Jamnia, which laid down the limits of the Old Testament canon. Now, today, in light of ongoing research, 
Nearly all credible scripture scholars agree that the Council of Jamnia was simply made up. It never happened. There are a great many of detailed studies on this topic, but I'll leave that for later. On the other hand, our first century Jewish historian Josephus, writing sometime after AD 94, stresses that 22 books were considered by Jews as sacred, although he doesn't mention the books by name. He writes, we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five belong to Moses, which contain the laws and the traditions, the origins of mankind till his death, and so on. But as to the time from the death of Moses, till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, or Artaxerxes, I'm sorry, the king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So notice, this is Josephus writing much later in the first century. At the time of Jesus, there was no established canon of the Old Testament. No one could say, including Jesus, that here are the books in the Hebrew Scriptures. They had the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. A limited number of prophets and some of the writings. But the canon didn't fully come to be until much later. So that's a pretty strong argument for a closed canon of Old Testament by the end of the first century AD in Josephus. And it's a strong statement for sure. But it doesn't settle the issue of a closed authoritative canon of Old Testament scripture. It would be naive and indeed incorrect to think that there was any normative body within Second Temple Judaism that made a universal proclamation regarding what books were in the Hebrew scriptures. In Jesus' day and throughout the second and third centuries, there were hundreds of synagogues scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and there was no single governing body overseeing their operation. Consequently, there was a great deal of latitude in what one community viewed as scripture versus what other communities viewed as scripture. So you get the point? An Old Testament canon did not begin to emerge until we move into the second century. In Jesus' day, a fixed set of books in the Hebrew Scriptures simply did not exist. If, in fact, only in the 2nd through 5th centuries in Palestine, the 3rd through 7th century in Persia, Mesopotamia, and the early Middle Ages of the Mediterranean world, the rabbis finally developed a cohesive, unified, and somewhat authoritative voice regarding the Jewish scriptural canon, okay? So we understand that the Old Testament canon was in flux for a very long time, but what about the New Testament canon, the Christian books of scripture? And that will be our topic for the next podcast. That was a little detailed, but important to know, really important to know, 
that at the time of Jesus, there was no fixed canon of Hebrew scriptures. There were a lot of things eligible. Some recognized the Torah for sure, but the canon was still open. Hey, thanks, gang. I will see you back again with the New Testament. Bye-bye now.